Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah Peck, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. There is a book called Minimalist Parenting. It is a call to enjoy family life more by doing less. In it, I learned about how we might think about not overbooking our children, cutting through the clutter, and editing the activities in our lives so we only have the meaningful and the remarkable and the joyful left. When I found out about this book, I was immediately drawn into it, and I loved the themes, and I knew I had to interview the authors. Asha Dornfest and Christine Coe came together to write this book, and they also have a podcast. It's called the Edit Your Life podcast, which brings us to today's guest. Today, I get to bring on Christine Coe onto the show and talk about her background, her parenting story, and her views on doing less with kids and also in our lives so that we can have more breathing room and more room for joy. Christine Coe is a music and brain neuroscientist. She's turned into quite an internet unicorn, and she is devoted to helping people live better and happier lives and have an elevated intention and purpose in their lives. She is the founder and editor of Boston Mamas, a pioneering hyperlocal lifestyle blog. She's the creative director at Women Online, which is a communications firm that specializes in using social media for good. And she's the co-owner and designer at Brave New World Designs. Across this potpourri of projects, including her book and her podcast and her many business adventures, we talk today about how you can be a multifaceted business owner and still lead a streamlined life. In today's episode, we get to hear her backstory. We hear about her parenting journey. We talk about her career pivot and switch from her neuroscientist background into what she's doing today. We talk about babies and how different they can be and how her first baby was radically different from her second baby. She has a funny story about how some babies are barracudas and they eat in like 10 minutes and then they're done. And other babies, well, they're boob trolls and they just stay stuck on you for hours and hours and hours. And you never really know what kind of baby you are going to get. We also talk about what it takes to leave a high-powered, high-profile job and career and make a huge change, especially when you get to the pinnacle of it. And then lastly, she shares some of her excellent tips on scheduling and managing your calendar and how to keep white space in your calendar so you don't drive yourself crazy. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. If you live in the United States, you are entitled to a free breast pump with your insurance, but navigating insurance and paperwork can be such a pain. Aeroflow Breast Pumps, the sponsor of this episode, is a company dedicated to making the hassle of getting a breast pump a lot easier for new mamas. If you are a new mom or even a second time or third time mom, Aeroflow has a ton of resources for you about breastfeeding and pumping and navigating the transition back to work all on their website. If you head over to aeroflowbreastpumps.com slash startup, they can quickly and easily help you qualify for a free breast pump through your insurance. 
I just used them for my second baby. And it honestly took just a couple of minutes to go online and and enter my information. They ran all the checks. They set up the dates. They sent me an email. They said, you're eligible. And then when my eligibility window came up, they went ahead and they shipped it right out to me. So it was super easy. It was such a relief. There is enough to do when you are prepping for a new baby. And having somebody like Aeroflow Breast Pumps on your team is really helpful. The link's in the show notes, and it's also on our website, too. I'm so excited to welcome Christine Coe to the show. Christine, welcome to the show. Hello, Sarah. I'm so glad to be here. So I want to start with what I hope is an easy question. What time did you wake up this morning, and what did you do first? Let's see. I woke up at 5.45, and... Not exactly on my own will. I was greeted by my, my seven-year-old woke me up. So my first action, I suppose, was to try to wrestle her back into bed with me and snuggle and go to sleep some more, <laughs> which probably <laughs> sounds very familiar to a lot of your listeners. <laughs> totally. I love this question because you immediately see the lives of parents. Mm-hmm. What time would be your ideal wake-up time if you didn't have a seven-year-old waking you um, up? You know, I actually do like waking early in the morning and I do love sleep. I will just say it right out there in that I prefer to get eight to nine hours of sleep. During the summer months, I tend to be up by around five or 5.30 actually, because I try to work a little bit before everybody else gets up. I know that story. I know that story well. So from the outside, you are this like reigning champion of pivots and making new leaps into the unknown. When I look at your body of work and I read about all that you've done, I want to go back in time a little bit for our listeners, because you were a music and brain neuroscientist. You spent a decade in academia, and you were awarded prestigious fellowships and postdoctoral fellowships, and you were on track to become a professor. And then you decided to make a change. Can you talk about what that time in your life was like and what the decision to change was like? Yeah. I mean, even though that was now 12 years ago, that time of life, it's definitely all very fresh in my memory. As I'm sure a lot of your listeners kind of can relate to, getting pregnant, having kids changes things. And I was very determined to become a professor and a scientist. I had went to school at an amazing undergraduate university. My goal was to basically go back and teach where I'd gone to undergrad, which was Wheaton College, a very small liberal arts college in Massachusetts that I love. And all was fine and well. And then, you know, I worked up to really arguably one of the fanciest appointments one could possibly have. I was back in Boston. This is my home. I was really happy to be here. And I had a triple appointment at Mass General Hospital, Harvard Medical School and MIT. So it sounds amazing. It sounded very fancy. And it was terrible. (laughs) It Mm. was just really terrible. And I was slogging through it. I was just trying to finish. And as I was drawing towards the close, you know, I had my first kid. And at the same time, actually, my dad got very sick and was basically in his last year of life. And that was really a reflection point for me where I thought, you know, I love working. I do want to work. But if I'm going to do it, it has to be something that lights me up. So I can leave these people and be okay doing that. And I realized that academia wasn't that anymore. So it was at that point where I jumped into the internet. (laughs) (laughs) And became an internet unicorn, as I read on your book. That actually is on my business card, internet unicorn. (laughs) I love that phrase. I want to dive into this because I was suspecting, but I didn't 
know. I wanted to ask about whether or not parenting was something, your journey into parenting and pregnancy was something that, that inspired the shift. And can you tell us about your pregnancy journey and how that overlaps with this career shift journey? Sure. You know, it's been really interesting because, you know, I got pregnant when, when I was a postdoc and it was a fairly easy. My husband and I decided we were ready and me doing it as a postdoc would be a lot easier than me doing it as a faculty member, we thought. And so the timing seemed right and it all helped, happened relatively quickly. And boy, oh boy, my oldest daughter, you know, when she was a baby was just a very attached baby. You know, I nursed and I later learned that pediatricians will sort of humorously categorize nursing babies as either like the barracuda who's like, nom, 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 nom. Okay, now I'm done. Or the gourmand who stays on there for like an hour or two at a time. (laughs) (laughs) And my first one was definitely the gourmand. So she just wanted and needed me a lot as a little baby would. And it just really started to jumpstart my thinking that, you know, there's something different here. And at that time, a lot of my friends who were also getting pregnant would ask me for advice about things because they knew I researched things ad nauseum. And at one point I said, hmm, you know, it would be really great if instead of emailing this information over and over and over, if I could just put it somewhere on the internet where people could just find it and use it and then I could help them. And a tech friend of mine said, you need to start a blog. And at that time, I didn't even know what that was. But that was the beginning of everything for me was starting my blog towards the end of my postdoc. And then things started to really take off. What was that blog? Yeah, my very first internet property was slash is a site called bostonmamas.com. It's interesting because I feel very pulled towards the hyperlocal name. I had a bunch of people advise me not to do that because it wouldn't resonate as generally. But it's kind of great because it's a lifestyle site and there is local content, but there's all sorts of other parenting and lifestyle content. So there is a Boston audience. It's also national and it's really evolved to become something that I really wanted it to be, but wasn't wasn't really sure about when I started. I just kind of saw an editorial hole in the city and wanted to fill it. So when you went to shift over, you started the blog, you're in your postdoc, you had your young one. What was that process like? Because some people, they wake up and it's like a light switch and they're like, oh, I'm jumping ship. I'm doing this. And for others, it's like a layering and it's more messy. Mm -hmm. When Mm -hmm. did you officially end academia and say, okay, I'm going with this blog thing? I started in July of, okay, math is hard. It was 12 years ago. Um, <laughs> but a while ago. <laughs> and, you know, the reality is I am somebody who likes to finish what I start. So I was closing in on the end of my postdoctoral fellowship. I had an NIH grant I had applied for and earned, and I wanted to carry that out to completion. And it wrapped by September. And it was really interesting because at that point in the summer before my postdoc ended, I was literally on the brink of faculty applications. Like I had listings printed out. I was ready. My CV was ready, which is the resume in academia. I had everything ready to go. I had this moment where I was standing there looking around my apartment with this little baby. And I said, I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. I can't do this. I don't want to do this anymore. And you know, I'd spent so much time carving out this career in music and brain neuroscience, and it felt sort of crazy, but it just was one of those examples where it felt so absolutely right. And, you know, my postdoc was such an unhealthy environment. It was causing physical symptoms too. So my husband said, jump, you got to just do it and we can handle it financially. 
just jump. You'll figure out the rest. You're smart. And so I really give my husband a lot of credit too for just saying, not giving me permission exactly, but really just being supportive and saying, I know you can figure this out and just do it. I'm here to support. Do you remember if there was like a feeling of relief and possibility or were there a lot of tears? Like what were the emotions like? Um, I remember tears of joy when I cleaned out my office and left. (laughs) (laughs) It's so full circle. You know, my biggest concern, all of my friends were like, praise Jesus. You're such a social person. The idea of you being alone in a lab that like never made sense to us anyway. So my friends were all like, yeah, okay, this is totally the right thing. But not surprisingly, the person I was most concerned about was my mom and my mentors at my undergraduate. And, you know, for my mom, you know, my dad had died by this point and I'm Korean and Korean parents can be kind of intense. So I was sort of bracing myself for what she was going to say to me. And she said, and I swear I had never heard these words before, but she just said, you know what, Christine, I just want you to be happy. And it was like, okay, we're, you know, this is fine. This has just happened. And I'm taking that acceptance and just running with it. So it's funny, we always want our parents approval, right? And in that moment, you know, it was really a turning point for her as well. Oh, moms. moms. I know, right? <laughs> moms can make it all better. <laughs> um, oh, I, thanks for taking us into that because I am I know that there are so many people who have young kids, one, two, three, even four, and it can be such a hard thing to figure out that decision making. And for a lot of people, it's like motherhood is a BS detector or a pressure cooker might be a better way of saying it. And it really becomes this time when you reevaluate and to use your words, edit your life right? <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and shift and figure out, okay, what's next? And is this still the thing? And I'm always curious what that looks like for each individual person. Yeah, it's an interesting time, right? Because on the one hand, I love the way you framed it just now. On the one hand, you're sort of like, so kind of crazed and sleep deprived and just like confused. Like there's this general, you know, haze around you, you know, as a new parent. But on the other hand, you have such limited bandwidth for nonsense that in some ways it helps you see a little more clearly. So those seem a little bit opposite in concept, but I think they're actually related. I think so too. And I don't, I don't have an answer to this for people listening. It's a puzzle because I know there's sometimes in your life, you have a 12 month old and you just need to get through it. You need to get to the other side of sleep. You need to like get to a two year old, find sunshine again, and you actually will like your career again. And then there's other times when it's actually a wake up call. And I don't know, what are your thoughts on this, on making these complex decisions in the face of like big things like people dying, people being born, big career shifts? It might sound a little trite, but I feel like in general, our lives are just so complex and multidimensional and that no one thing is going to solve, you know, the issue. I just, I guess I think about how I was when I was pregnant and then, you know, with a new baby the first time when I was still in academia compared to how I was pregnant and working with a little baby with my second unexpected pregnancy. (laughs) And by that point, I was firmly in the world of internet. I was so happy because I was really calling the shots on my work and my projects. And it was a completely different experience. And I felt like I was able to make decisions from a more grounded place because I wasn't so 
miserable in this one major area that is work, you know? So I think as much as you can create positivity in various dimensions of your life, whether it's your friendships, whether it's your partnership, if you are in a married or partner situation, you know, whether it's in your own self-care pursuits or hobbies or whatever, any places where you can add little pockets of happiness and positivity, I think is just going to majorly impact your experience as a whole. I love that. So can you tell us the story also of how your second kid, you say it was a surprise pregnancy, came into your life? And where was that in this, what now seems like a collection of projects that you're working on, a collection of companies? You started Boston Mamas, and you were into the world of running your own internet businesses and internet life and calling the shots. Tell us the story. Yes. A few years in when Laurel, my oldest, who is now 13 going on 14 soon, which is bananas. uh, But when she was younger in that sort of early stage of childhood, you know, I had Boston Mamas. I was doing freelance writing. I had started a design business, you know, things like that. And, you know, a few years in, we were ready to have another kid and it just wasn't happening. And I can't count how many hundreds of dollars I probably spent on ovulation tests and everything else. And it just wasn't happening. And, you know, I'm sure you've had listeners who have wrestled with this sort of thing. It is both the sort of thing you just don't want to think about all the time, yet you can't stop thinking about it all the time and you feel crazy. (laughs) And after I would say maybe three years, I think Laurel was about six years old. I just finally made my peace with it. And I said, okay, I don't know if this is secondary infertility. I don't know what it is, but we're done. We are a family of three and we are blessed with what we have in front of us. I I couldn't imagine having an only because I grew up as one of seven kids in my family. So it was just weird, the idea of not having siblings. But I was like, this is just what the universe has dealt us. And we're really lucky with what we've got in front of us. I'm making it sound easy. It was hard. I cried a lot and I felt like a failure and I felt terrible. And so it was actually very cleansing. I donated all of our baby things. I gave everything away. I told Laurel, you know, it wasn't happening. She was sad, but she accepted it. And then literally a month or two after I gave everything away, I discovered I was pregnant. (laughs) Wow. The kids are six and a half years apart which seemed a little crazy, but has been awesome. Our second one, Violet, she's just a delight and is so complicated and has been so different than our first one. It's really been kind of an amazing journey to have that sort of crazy emotional roller coaster of really feeling for years like it was never going to happen. And then, you know, when I did discover I was pregnant, I wasn't actually overjoyed at all. I was shocked and confused, (laughs) quite honestly. Tell me more. This has happened for a number of women, this experience of being shocked or confused, or at least the emotions being different than they expect. What happened? Yeah. You know, it was funny because I was, I think I was a little late. I'm not sure how closely I was paying attention, but I woke up and my boobs hurt. And I was like, oh no, wait, what is this? And I was actually on my way out to a work event that day and where I was going to be on site doing something. But I was like, what is happening? So I rooted around. I'm like ripping stuff out of the, you know, the cabinet under the sink in my bathroom. And I was like, ah, okay, I have one pregnancy test left over just sitting around from like two years ago or whatever it was. 
And I took it and it came up positive and I just stood there in complete shock. I was getting ready for my day. So I walked out of the bathroom, put the stick in my husband's hand and I said, we'll discuss this later. And then I left. (laughs) (laughs) Like I couldn't even, and he was just staring at it like, what is happening? And then our schedules were just so crazy. I don't even remember what was happening, but we didn't even get to talk about it for like three days because we were just like ships passing in the night with work stuff. So we finally sat down like three days later and we're like, okay, this is, this is happening. And when we told Laurel, we were still in this state of shock and she got really angry because she said, you told me like she thought we were lying to her. Like she said, you told me there was not going to be another baby. What is happening? She was just as confused as we are. So, you know, after we got over the state of just utter shock and confusion, then we were happy, but (laughs) it was really, it was really crazy. And the only thing I was like, dang, I gave all of my stuff away. So I have to say, (laughs) like, I was like, man, what a pain in the ass. Sorry. I hope I can say that. So, um, You know, the wonderful thing is one of my good girlfriends from college said, listen, I'm going to host you a baby shower. And I said, "Okay, but only if it is permissible and encouraged on the invitation for people to clean out their basements and give me their hand me down stuff. And so I had a secondhand baby shower and it was awesome. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it was so great. (laughs) So where in this journey then with the two children did minimalist parenting come to be? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I don't think I've ever explicitly thought about it till just a few minutes ago when you were asking about like where Violet happened in the trajectory of my different projects. I just realized that, you know, I had my early design business. It used to be called Posh Peacock. I had like a paper design business. I had that in Boston Mamas while Laurel was little. But then the real upswing of projects and creativity actually happened after Violet, which seems a little backwards because it feels like when you have two kids, the less time you have. But I think that, you know, my life now and since having her has just, it's been, as I said, just so many positive elements in so many areas of my life that I think that has helped with my creativity. That's my hypothesis at the moment. So I actually wrote or started writing with Asha Dornfest, Minimalist Parenting, when I had like a two month old at home. <laughs> wow. So yeah, like, I mean, it's so not the time to write a book, right? But I just, just had a lot of, maybe a lot of creative hormones, who knows, I just had a lot of like, energy at that time. I mean, I was still tired. And of course, you know, you have a new baby. It's not like I'm some superhero or anything like that. I think it just for who I was at that time, I was ready to jump into that. Wait, so I have to ask, was she a barnacle or what was the other term? Yeah, she was a barracuda. She, barracuda. she was like, nom, 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 and I'm done. I was, and maybe that was part of it because I was literally like, whoa, I can say I'm going to nurse and then we can actually walk out the door 10 minutes later. Like that's really happening. It was so different. I think that might have been part of the reason why. Maybe um, I, w- I could actually like work hands free for a little bit. So <laughs> people always ask me, they're like, well, what will I be able to do? You know, I'll have a three month old. Can I do this, this or this? And I'm always like, it depends on the human you get. Like it really, <laughs> it really does. Have- actually, I'll say, and I'm sure this is a big issue for many of your listeners. The other defining factor that probably was contributing to my productivity after Vi was that Laurel would never take a bottle and Vi totally took a bottle right away. There so, you go. yeah. And with Laurel, I nursed her till 13 months. So that, 
<laughs> you know, I mean, not being able to rely on a bottle at all, that was really challenging. Oh, it can be some of the hardest, some of the hardest stuff. Like the parenting stories I hear. And, and the reason this podcast is so fun is because you get to hear like a whole gamut of them and realize like, oh, wow, there's so many different ways this can go. Yes. Um, but some of them I'm just like, oh, no, you didn't have any time until your child was two. And that's okay. Yeah. You know, or yeah. it, it might not feel okay, but that was what happened. Yeah. I always want moms to just feel like so much self-forgiveness or just compassion for themselves because it is really just a remarkable thing to grow and raise another human being. So <laughs> I think yeah. we're just so hard on ourselves and our expectations are so high that, you know, I would encourage people to just like lower the expectations and the bar a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so Minimalist Parenting is a book that you co-wrote with Asha Dornfest, and you are both the co-hosts of this podcast, the Edit Your Life podcast. Yeah. How did you meet Asha? Well, so, you know, Asha, gosh, I love her. I think you have talked to her or will be talking to her. She's wonderful. Yeah. And, you know, after I started my blog in 2006, I actually sent her an email because I found her blog, Parent Hacks, and I just wrote her and said, I just wanted to tell you I really respect and admire what you do and I love how resourceful it is and just thanks for what you do on the internet. And I didn't expect to hear from her because she was like big blogger, right? And she actually wrote back. And now that I know Asha, of course she wrote back. <laughs> like, <laughs> she's so kind that way. And we just started keeping in touch. And, you know, we just became internet friends, which sounds so weird, but we didn't actually meet in person. We had a series of like missed connections. And then we didn't actually meet in person till like three years later, I think. And we were going to a conference blog her in New York. And we were like, let's be roommates. This is the first time we're meeting in person, but let's be roommates, <laughs> which sounds so sketchy, but it was awesome. And so, you know, I've known her from the beginning of the internet journey, but for the first three years of that, really only via email. And it's just blossomed into this incredible friendship and working relationship. And she's wonderful. So then how did that go and become writing this book together? What was the catalyst for saying, all right, we're going to write a book about parenting and this is what it's going to be? Well, I was at a conference. This conference is, was called Blistem. It's not in existence anymore. But I had given a talk at a conference there. And generally speaking, it was about kind of this do less kind of strategy, you know, get more out of life by doing less strategy. And people were really responding to it. And anytime I had even written something in the parenting realm about like, hello, let's step off the hamster wheel. And you know, there's a different way to do this. I would get all these messages from people like, oh my gosh, I was thinking that, but I was afraid to say it. So while I was at that conference, a lot of people were like, you should really write a book. And so on the plane ride home, this is kind of how I do things. I banged out an outline. I was like, as soon as I got off the plane, I was like, I know what I'm going to call this. It's going to be called minimalist parenting. I bought the domain, like as I was in my, you know, in the taxi on the <laughs> way home. And then I can't remember. It was, there was a little bit of a delay. Maybe it could have coincided to the shock of realizing I was pregnant. I can't remember. But at one point, I realized I wanted to do this project with somebody. And, you know, Asha and I are very aligned philosophically with parenting. And so I reached out to her and was like, you know, what do you think about this? Actually, I think I asked her in person and she said yes. And so we wrote the whole thing on Google Docs. We actually had the book deal before I sent a short proposal to somebody. I'd met somebody at an event I was at. 
co-hosting and they were a book publisher. And when I told them the idea, they were like, send me more, send, you know, we want to hear more. And I sent the proposal and they accepted the offer and then off we went. So it was sort of crazy and very, very fast. Wow. Wow. Did you do that just straight with the publisher, not with an agent? Well, so we got the book deal before the agent (laughs) and I was kind of, which was crazy. But once we got the book deal, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm terrible at reading contracts. That's not my forte. I need an agent to like review this. So just through word of mouth, we secured an agent and then he negotiated the rest of it for us. But it was a very different way to do it. Usually you have the agent first who's kind of stumping for you, but it happened a little backwards just because of, you know, the in-person nature of the world and the fact that I happened to be at this, you know, event and met this book publisher. That's so interesting to me. I find that really fascinating. And then also, that's what agents are really good at. Like, they're they're like, oh, no, I know what to go to bat for. And you do not want to sign away the movie rights to this for the rest of your life. Right, right. right. (laughs) So interesting. So you wrote this book. I love it. I have it right here in front of me. It just speaks so much to both my husband and me about the ethos of how time crunched people are and how much we try to stuff into our lives. And how important it is to not live stark, white, minimal lives with nothing in them, but to edit them down to be able to focus or at least have breathing space. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the philosophy behind it before we get into some of the strategies? Yeah, I think the really important thing that Asha and I felt is, you know, when we were writing the book and starting the book, we realized that there was a little funny dichotomy because on the one hand, you know, people were starting to refer to us as parenting experts because we've been writing, you know, writing about parenting for a long time. But we're kind of like, hello, we're not parenting experts. We're parents. We've been there. We've done it. But we realized that every experience could be different depending on the type of kid you get. And also every family is going to be so unique and the needs they have and the different kids they have and the different preferences they have. So instead of writing a book that was really like, you must do X, Y, and Z, and then your life will be fine. We kind of felt like some parenting books can kind of get like that. You know, we really wanted to tune into the reality. I mean, there's plenty of practical tips that one could take, but the baseline reality is every family is going to have their unique set of values and things that they want to do in their lives. And that's actually where you need to start. And then our job is to come in and say, okay, now here's how you can, you know, peel back and dial back your level of crazy, wherever that level of crazy may be. So it it really is, I think the first step is realizing that what your journey in parenting looks like is going to be totally different from somebody else's. So, you know, I guess suppose the first step might be to like, just stop with the comparison and just focus on what's in front of you. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that you start the book with the values and mm-hmm. and really stepping back and getting a big picture because it's about the stuff, but it's not about the stuff. And like as a small story, my husband and I are expecting our second kid, and so oh my goodness, congratulations! <laughs> Thanks. I went out and I bought. This is insane, people listening. But I bought thirty house plants. <laughs> <laughs> I was like carting houseplants home. I like borrowed a grocery cart from the the local grocery store because I was like, I can't carry these because I'm too pregnant. But can you just loan me a shopping cart? I swear I'll bring it back. I'm totally driving a shopping cart through New York City. And then we bought like 60 different art frames. And I just looked at him smiling like mad. And I was like, I just want art and plants. That's what I want. (laughs) I think that's amazing. I think, hey, the more plants, nature and creativity is going to save us all. So if you're like nesting is in the form of, you know, (laughs) plants and artwork, great. (laughs) 
<laughs> totally. But it's definitely like if I were trying to compete in one of those like 300 things or fewer, 100 things or fewer, I just blew it with however many plants I bought. But yeah. it's it's not like it's it's not. So I just I realized from the outside how crazy we can go when we're pregnant. And I'm right there. I'm right there inside of it. But I love the ethos, like this idea of making room for the remarkable. Can you talk to that? The reality is life needs degrees of freedom. We need open space. <laughs> you know, if your schedule is jam-packed all the time and your mental bandwidth is totally jammed-packed all the time, there's just not going to be room for unexpected you know, great things to happen, um, whether that's a work opportunity, whether that's time with a friend, you know, whatever it may be. So, you know, a big piece of this book is really about, okay, how can you look through your calendar and remove things, look through your to-do list and remove things, get rid of emotional baggage that is hanging on you and dragging you down so you have room for remarkable things to happen. I mean, I wouldn't have had the time to go get the plants if I had booked my calendar with meeting up until lunch and a lunch meeting and a this and a that and like having space on my calendar where I just said, okay, here's my crazy whim. I'm going to walk over to the store and get a bunch of plants. My husband came home and I'm like, I know you're not supposed to do this as a pregnant person, but I was like elbows deep in gardening dirt. And he's like, you know, here we are. This is what our life looks like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, and you probably got so much joy from those plants, right? Like, well, I haven't even thought about whether there's like a neurological connection to, there must be, but that there is joy and excitement in spontaneity too. And so to be able to experience just the joy and spontaneity of whatever it is, and then have it be connected to something you're really excited about. And then there's the actual process of doing, you know, it's just, there's just so much good stuff connected there that I think is just really awesome, you know, for you as a human being and yeah, and your general like mental well-being. It's really all around good. And something you mentioned too is keeping space like in one of the episodes of your podcast that I really love. And I think you replayed it again as one of the best of is this episode on serendipity space and really keeping space open for exactly this. Do you take a multiple pronged approach? Like, Do you take a defensive strategy where when things are coming into your calendar, you have really good ways of editing and saying no? Or do you find that later on after you've said yes to too many things, you have to go back and clean up? Or is it a mix of both? What does that look like for you? Oh, boy. So it's kind of a mix of things. I think there I'm going to try to hold the main points that I wanted to keep in my head here. But I think one thing is that I have become really great at saying no to things. There are all the sorts of things that'll come in your email and you'll sometimes you'll have a like, yes, absolutely response. And then some things you'll have a, yeah, definitely no response. The really troubling spot is those things that feel like, oh, I don't really want to do that, but I kind of feel like I have to do that. So I have trained myself to get really good at just weeding that stuff out <laughs> and saying no. And I wanted to share with your listeners, the most effective and simple way I've done that, which is to just say no graciously and not make an excuse for why you can't do it. You know, like we as human beings, we're sort of trained to say, oh, I can't do that because, and then, you know, say something. So I've talked to so many people who get hung up with saying no because they feel bad because they don't want to lie or they don't really have an excuse and they don't know what to do. And I'm like, just say no, you don't have to say anything else. Once I started doing that, like, that became way easier. The other thing I wanted to suggest is that at one point I held 
all of the things for kids and me and my husband in a Google Calendar, which only I would look at because my husband was not into Google Calendar. And it was driving me crazy. And so at one point, we I think it was might have been my husband's idea, but we keep a totally old school make it by hand on a piece of poster board calendar where we actually like my kids and I actually draw in the squares. We can fit nine weeks like with business size card squares, <laughs> two inches by three and a half. If you're looking, you can fit nine weeks on a poster board. We draw on the dates and then there is a central family calendar. So none of the kids stuff goes on my work slash Christine Co personal calendar, which is awesome because now I'm not getting alerts all the time off my calendar. And then they can see and have agency over what's on the calendar, which is awesome. But what this also allows us to do is that I recommend if you've been overwhelmed by stuff on your calendar, you know, we'll do like a week look ahead and it's never going to be perfect. Okay. So some weeks you're going to have too much stuff, but they're all like, you really have to do them. But there will be a lot of weeks where there are things that you could strike off the calendar. So what I recommend, I talk about this in the book, but what I recommend to people is to kind of look for your Goldilocks level of busy and to actually collect some data. Like, so go back maybe eight weeks worth and, you know, count how many events did we have on a week that felt really bananas, couldn't stand my life busy. You know, how many events were on the calendar on a week where it felt a little slow? And then how many events were on the calendar, you know, when it felt just right? We had like enough open pockets of time and free days, but then other days we had something. And then shoot for that middle ground as well as you can, because at least you'll know what you're shooting for. And as I said, it won't be perfect every week, but just actually knowing that will be very helpful for your family. That's so cool. And I think there's this tendency for people to look at their calendar. And if there's white space, it's like, oh, I have room for more meetings. Instead of looking at the calendar and saying, wow, I have eight meetings scheduled this week. And I'm a five meeting kind of person. I'm already Mm -hmm. overbooked. Even though Friday's wide open, I'm going to need that just to unpack what happened to me the rest Mm -hmm. of the week. That's so interesting. I'm glad you brought that up, the meeting side of it, because right in that moment, I was talking about sort of family calendar planning. But I feel like you need to do that with work, too, depending on like what kind of style you are. I know for me, I explicitly try to keep at least one day a week totally free of meetings because, you know, the start and stop of meetings is really challenging, but I have a lot yeah. of them. <laughs> so if I have a free day where I can sink in and dig into some of the bigger projects that are going to require some more brain space or to like obliterate my email or whatever, it's actually very comforting to me and then decreases my stress, you know, when I'm not working, because I know I have that time to kind of catch up. That's so interesting. It occurs to me now that my husband does this in our social calendar. Every month, he's far more introverted than I am. We're both introverts, but he's just much more like needs that space to recharge and let his mind expand. And Mm. we'll look at the calendar and we'll look at the month of, you know, February or whatever. And if three of them have events on them, that fourth one is like sacred. We cannot put a thing on it because he needs one weekend every calendar month that there's no leaving the house, there's no obligations, there's no anything. He always pushes back on me too. I'll be like, oh, let's do this thing with these friends on that weekend. And he's like, Mm-mm, the other three are mm-hmm. full. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad like that's a really solid thing to know about yourself. So that's a really good thing, you know, that you guys are already like, can already see those patterns and know them and be able to figure out how to negotiate. Like that's really, that's solid. Do you see any other like common like fatal errors or things that people really get overwhelmed with when they're looking at 
the busyness of life and trying to edit it a little bit or just make a little more space for sanity? I think the one of the biggest challenges I see, and it's a complicated one. I mean, like everything, it's multidimensional. But I think kids and overbooking them is a real challenge spot. And it's this kind of perpetuating thing because, I mean, you're in New York, so hello. Same thing. I'm in the Boston yeah. area. But it's a very intense, competitive place to be. The thing I hear so much from so many people is, well, you know, but if I don't sign them up for this, this, and this, they're going to get behind. And then, you know, and I'm always like, and then what? Like, you know, most kids are not going to be professional athletes, <laughs> you know, and it's great to support them in what they're doing. But I will say personally, I really don't like chauffeuring and driving around. So it was sort of unheard of when we drew a line in the sand and said, you know what, we are a one activity per season family. Like, that's it. Like, I'm just not driving anybody else around. If you want to get yourself to something else, great. But <laughs> I'm just not gonna, you know, go into that crazy zone. I think we are definitely the exception to the rule in our neighborhood. But I think you have to kind of carve out, you know, what actually works and realize that it's okay to not do all the things. It is perfectly okay. And you are going to raise a kid who can for sure be able to do lots of things in the world. Yes. Oh, I love that so much. And I'm filing that away for the future because the temptation is there. It's so high. It's like, oh, well, we'll do swimming and piano and this and that. And mm -hmm. at some point you just become sleep deprived little zombies because you're driving around in cars all the time. Yeah. Yeah. That mm -hmm. is really the joke around here is that like Christine Coe doesn't like to drive. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I just don't want to do it. <laughs> so, and, and I will say I do apologize to my mother with some regularity about all the rides I asked her for as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes full circle. It does. So you wrote something before we got on this interview about kind of the last topic I want to dig into with you about evolving who you are. You wrote, it's normal and good to evolve over time. And just because you were at one place in your life does not define where you are today. I want to dig into this because it's something that's really been affecting me lately. I know and work with a lot of teenagers and young 20-somethings and folks that are looking for mentors. And I come home at the end of the day and something I struggle with is how to convey like how do you even tell the story that in 15 years, how much can change and how mm -hmm. worth it it can be and encourage somebody on the path who is maybe just in the thick of really struggling? Can you talk to me about how you look at evolving as a person and you've created so much with your life and you've changed so many different things? What have you learned because of it? First of all, I love that you do that work. That's awesome. And I guess I would say that the life cycle is very long and I don't think we're meant as human beings to do one thing the whole time. You know, I mean, certainly our generation is not like our parents' generation or the one before that where you would stay in one thing for a long time. It's interesting. If I think back to sort of my trajectory, like nobody believes this, but I was actually really not a good student when I was in middle school and high school, like I was a solid sort of B minus C student, which nobody believes now. You know, I grew up in a very chaotic, difficult household and, you know, didn't have a lot of support. And it wasn't until I got to college where I started to thrive because 
I was sort of receiving the unconditional support, like both when I did well and also when I fell on my face, you know, from adults, my professors. And I think that's why Wheaton was so important to me and why I really felt like I have to go back and be a teacher and help the next generation of confused young people like (laughs) find their footing. So, you know, when I think back to those earlier days and some of the relationships I was in and all these other things, I will have moments of feeling a little embarrassed about who I was at that particular moment or what I was doing. And then I always think, you know what, like really for many of us, we are doing the best we can with what we've got in front of us at any given moment. And that's okay. And so it takes a while to figure out what's going to light you up, what makes you excited to work and be creative. And, you know, if that takes 20 years or 10 years or whatever, at least you found it, right? You know, so I feel like I meet so many women, especially now, and I think it's probably common, you know, you have a kid that changes your perspective, or you need a different working environment. And there's a lot of justifiable fear about how to take a jump or do something different or do something you actually care about versus doing something to pay the bills. And I just always encourage people like, don't be hemmed in by what you were doing before and who you were before, because that stuff does not stay constant. And what you need now is just going to be different than what it was before because you are a more evolved human being. So I just always want to encourage people to remember that it's totally normal to evolve and to have your priorities shift and your passions shift and that it's good to like let go of the control a little and kind of see what emerges. Mm. It's so important. And that attitude of being able to continue to like wake up to who you are right now, like, oh, what's happening right now? And this might be the best that I can do. It's scary, right? It's scary to feel, you know, and especially if you're in a down moment where you're like struggling with everything and you might say, is this the best I can do? And the answer is probably yes. And that's okay. Because if you're really struggling, it means you have a lot on you. It's totally normal to feel like you're underwater, but you will come out of it. So, I mean, I just, I was just there. Like I actually, you know, people see me as this person who has everything all together all the time. And just last week I had a complete, I don't even know what it was. I think it was a panic attack, but it wasn't a panic attack. I was not anxious or anything, but I had the physical man manifestations of what I can only describe as like a stress seizure of some kind. And, Mm -hmm. um, like I couldn't move for like two hours and was dripping with sweat. And I think just life had come crashing down on me. And my body was just saying, you got to stop. You need to stop and reevaluate. I wrote something about it. I can give it to you after so you can link it up if you want to. But it was a very reflective moment for me where I was like, okay, so this happened in real time. I was like, I need to evolve further from where I am right now because I cannot sustain uh, like what is happening right now for the long haul. Hmm. It was really interesting. (laughs) What do you have a sense of like what caused it or were there any surprises where you, you use that time and said, Oh wow, I didn't even realize. Yeah. I mean, I think it was a combination of none of this will sound surprising to, you know, somebody who's tuning in, who is working, but you know, I work full time. My office is my home studio this is all the sort of multidimensional stuff, right, that I've been referring to. But, you know, my kids don't have a ton of summer camp book because they don't like being overbooked. 
maybe because I don't like to drive. I don't know. But they they generally really don't <laughs> like to be overbooked. And my husband, who's a therapist, he has to go see his clients in his office. So even though I have a full-time plate of work to deal with, I'm always the point person for everything during the day. And I think that coupled with, you know, just, I was just incredibly stressed out. I was actually asked myself at one point, I'm like, is this what bipolar feels like? I feel crazy. Like, I feel like, Mm. like some days I'll be like, Hey, fun mom is here. And then other days I'd be like, okay, kids freaked out. Mom is here. Get ready. (laughs) Um, and, and it was really distressing to me. And so on, you know, last week I literally, I got up at five 30 so I could get up before everybody else and get started. And that is when my body completely crashed down and said, Nope, sorry, Christine, time to do things differently. So what did you change? Yeah. Well, I had to sit still for like two hours before I could even get up and walk around. And as I said, I'll share the post where I outline, you know, all the things, but I think I'll tell you one of the most tactical things that I did. I think one of the things that was bogging me down was that, you know, I only had two weekdays worth of vacation planned all summer. And I was getting frustrated that I couldn't find any other open spaces to get some away time with the kids. Well, first I just pushed everything off my calendar and was like, okay, you need just need to focus on you right now. The very first tactical thing that I did that I would encourage all of your listeners to do, hopefully not in a state of stress seizure, but <laughs> before you get to that point, is I made a happy list and I wrote down things that make me happy, give me joy, fill me up. And the reason it was powerful is because I realized, wow a lot of these things are right in my grasp every day and I don't even need to go anywhere to do it. It's not like I need like a day at the spa or, you know, something really complicated. Like the top three things on my list were things like focused time with people. So no scrolling, you know, focused time where you're really with somebody tennis with my husband and like reading a good novel. So I immediately prioritized those three things over the weekend. I got myself some great books. I played a lot of tennis. I, you know, taught my seven-year-old how to play Sudoku. We did all sorts of like cozy activities. We read a lot of books. It was a good reminder that the small moments are all around us. We just have to stop being freaked out all the time and just notice them and remember that they're there. Christine, thank you so much for telling all these stories and joining us on the podcast and sharing your parenting and business journey. Where can people find you on the internet? I guess the easiest place is just christineco.com. And then from there, you can launch off to wherever you would like to launch off. (laughs) Everything is there. You can find all the projects. We'll link them all in the show notes, including the blog article that she has and your social media handles as well. Are you on socials anywhere? I do love social. It's kind of weird because I will post just about stuff, not just Boston stuff, but on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Instagram is my favorite. The handle is Boston Mamas. Boston Mamas. All right. I'll link that up in the show notes for everyone listening. Thanks for joining us. This was such a delight. Thank you for having me. And you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.